Hello. Well, hello. How's it going? <laughs> going well, my friend. How are you? Good. Happy Wednesday. Yeah. Happy Wednesday, indeed. I'm happy because I um, finally got my fancy espresso machine back up and working. Nice. It had been out of commission. Some some kind of phantom leak out of the bottom was happening. And so I was without cappuccinos at home for a couple of weeks. And actually, I do have something to plug. It's a relatively low-cost brewing method that is works really well. There's this pour-over method called a Kalita, which I think is a I think it's a Japanese product. And it's one of the most approachable pour-over techniques. The equipment is pretty cheap. You just need like a a good kettle and the little pour-over thingy that you put the filter in. And the slow bar app on the Apple App Store works really good for figuring out exact timing and how many coffee grounds to use and all that kind of stuff. So that was my fill-in method, and uh, it worked pretty well. I never got into pour-over. I've been an AeroPress person for a while. Hmm. Like once you start grinding fresh beans, you're like you're good, and yeah. everything after that was seemed like a little extraneous to me. Yeah, I don't. I haven't like done a side by side comparison with the easier, quicker brewing method to see if I could really tell the difference. But sure, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's cool. I actually, I uh, I did a little experiment and quit caffeine for a little while. Oh, did you? Yeah, uh, last couple of weeks. It was interesting. I tapered off pretty fast. Did it over just a couple of days, uh, and then went cold turkey. So I, I'm actually back on the caffeine train. I'm not honestly convinced it was worth it. So knowing I'm going to get some caffeine when I wake up is such a nice like thing like to get me out of bed. Giving that up was a, was a big loss where it's just like, oh man, like I, have, I don't have a thing to look forward to. And like getting decaf kind of gave that like that ritual feeling, but it wasn't the same. And honestly, I didn't, I didn't notice that much of a difference. I think I napped a little bit more effectively. Like I found myself, I would come home from work and like fall asleep at like six o'clock or something pretty consistently, which so I think it sort of exposed my sleep deprivation a little bit more. I may have been a tiny bit less anxious. I felt a little calmer during this period. I don't know if I was just, I don't know, mastering my brain or if that was just like a caffeine side effect or, you know, pure uh, suggestibility. But at the end of the day, I was just kind of like, ah, I miss I miss this. I feel like I'm denying myself a pleasurable thing that I haven't really noticed many downsides to. So It's one of those things where you, there's an optimal zone to be in, and it probably varies from person to person depending on body mass and all those factors. But like, just the right amount of caffeine is is like a great stimulating impact and doesn't go too far. And then, you know, people are drinking multiple pots a day. Like that's probably like doing more damage than good. And like you said, masking, you know, sleep deprivation, that kind of stuff. But I've known people who will know, have it down to a science on exactly how much caffeine is optimal for them. And sometimes they measure it in terms of like a Starbucks lattes or something like that. And anywhere they go, the one one benefit of that is they, you know, you can find Starbucks anywhere. So they always know how to get their exact dose in. Yeah, I've never I've never optimized quite that much, but uh, there is something interesting around caffeine that I think a lot of people don't know. Mm-hmm. Where I know a lot of people that will just drink caffeine like way late in the day or like at nine o'clock at night, and I'll always ask them like, "Are you you drinking caffeine?" And they always go, "Oh yeah, but it doesn't affect me. I can go right to sleep after this." And an important thing to be aware of is self-reported sleep quality measurements are unreliable. So when you put someone in a sleep lab and you give them caffeine before bed and you measure the quality of their sleep with like instruments, however they do it, caffeine totally affects sleep quality late in the day. Like it it makes it worse. But if you ask people about their sleep quality, they don't report worse sleep. So your own ability to detect that you're sleeping badly is actually not very reliable. And so if you think you're one of those people, 
you're almost certainly not. I don't think there are those people. It's a stimulant. Like it, it messes up with your sleep. Don't trust your, your own assessment in this case. Yeah. Never trust assessments for things that uh, you are unconscious for. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good rule. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you really like the doing the thing. It's like, no, I'm convinced the thing. Yeah. As I, as I say this, I'm noticing the applicability to myself. But hey, maybe I should measure my sleep during the next caffeine fast that I do and actually see because I felt like I was waking up a little bit earlier. So it seemed like maybe I was requiring slightly less sleep time because maybe the sleep quality was better. But I'd, I want to actually get some some numbers on that. Are you a Fitbit guy or you use some kind of tracker? Uh, I've used one of those apps on the phone before Yeah, where you put the phone in the bed. Uh, but I would like to try the Fitbit thing. Yeah. I don't want my phone in my bed. <laughs> yeah. It's no, it's no good. No phones boring. further from beds is probably a, a better thing. <laughs> yeah. I charge mine in the kitchen. Like that's to me like part of my like going to sleep ritual is like put the phone over here. It charges over here. And then it's just like it's out of my out of my hands. Yeah. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk about work. Yeah. What's been going on? Um, some good stuff. I bought a, a laptop and a monitor. Didn't really have a dev machine that was portable. I had like a little travel MacBook 12 inch that was good, but I want like a, it was, I decided it was time to do a, get a real machine because I've been focusing more and more on dev stuff. Uh, and I've been writing stuff code in Xcode, which is very chromey. It's got a lot of buttons and screen real estate required. It, so laptop screen is not the best for it. Is it not, not a viable option to really write Swift code in a lightweight editor? Like, do you need to use the IDE? I think you can. I believe there are there were Thoughtbot people that used Vim, and there's like a I think a lot of the functionality of Xcode is available through command line tools. For now, I'm not worrying about that at all. There's so much to learn that I want the most standard setup, and hopefully uh, later I can go back to happy Vim land. Yeah, why not make it harder on yourself in the beginning? You know, totally. Yeah, it's already hard. <laughs> it's it's like, you know, what's nice though is like I'm I've been in this spot before. I think if you don't regularly learn things you can sort of forget how really painful it is in the beginning and like how dumb you feel and how slow you go and all that but i think possibly one of my like useful skills that i've acquired over the years is that i've made myself a beginner in a number of fields enough i've trained myself to sort of say like there's so much i don't know about this but that's okay especially xcode it's just like i keep noticing all these little ui elements and i'll click that and it will pop open this thing and i'm like what the hell is this and it's got like 40 drop downs inside this and i don't recognize any of the words it's just this huge deep world and the apis are huge an important skill for me right now is just leaning on that like it's fine yep i don't know if that does that's all right just make keep making a little bit of progress and keep chipping away at it and eventually it'll feel less and less intimidating and the pieces that you don't know you'll start to realize yeah i'm never going to learn that and that's fine like I'm building myself a tree of knowledge to hang things on and it's slow and steady. Yeah. And I've had to have that, have that same kind of mindset because I kind of threw myself into a tech stack that was hundred percent new to me. You know, all these functional languages and, and principles that are quite different than what you see in Ruby land. Yeah. I've had to come to a similar conclusion where it's like, it's, it's, it's okay. I'm not going to know everything. And one of the things I really appreciate about kind of the Elm documentation and the guides and things is like, that is very much the, the sentiment expressed through all the documentation. It's like, don't worry about, you know, even how this file is going to morph over time. Just keep, keep adding to it and you'll know the right time to split things up or when to, you know, learn an advanced technique or switch to a more advanced program type. But for now, just like start with the basics and keep, you know, layering on brick by brick and it'll be okay. It'll be okay. Yeah. I think Elm is doing it better than anybody. Like, I don't think I've seen a language with so much care and intelligence 
thought in it as Elm in recent memory. Maybe Closure. Closure also is great, although not nearly. It, it lacks a lot of that friendliness. Like there is documentation, but it doesn't have that same sort of beginner friendliness. Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, so I'm, I'm upgrading my setup. I would have loved to have bought a MacBook without a touch bar, but I wanted the 15 inch and there was just no option for that. So it's, man, physical buttons are great. Touch screens have huge downsides. Like I keep trying to rest my finger on the escape key and actually hitting the escape touch bar sensitive surface. And it's just, it's, it feels so hacky. Had you used a touch bar one before? Or is this your first time? No, first yeah. time. Yeah. And I'd heard all the reports. And so I was like, I'm pretty sure I don't want this. And then in, in practice, I was like, yep, this is, this is worse. Yeah. I, it was better before. I kind of wish I would have gone with it because I would like to have a little bit more power. Like occasionally I get fans whirring pretty loud and things lagging a bit. When I have like a lot of asset recompilation happening in the background, rapidly saving files and stuff. But I don't know. I'm still get to bask in my physical escape key. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it seems like people are taking to buying the older ones, like 2013 or 15 or whatever it is. Like, rip of pre-touch bar uh, was a, a good year, which is pretty sad. It's quite an indictment. But yeah, I wanted the I wanted the new new processors and whatnot, and not fiddling around with refurbs and things. Well, hopefully, the world's first trillion dollar company will find their way back on the hardware front. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I feel like it takes a lot to be like, you know what, this is just not as good, and we're gonna go back to something else. I think I could see Apple doing that. I don't know. Who knows? I wonder what the, the mood is internally. Is there is there is a commonly held belief that like, hey, this is annoying? Not just the touch bar, but also just the the low profile butterfly keys have been such a headache for them, I think. You know, they've had to extend the warranty. There's been all the class action lawsuits. And so I don't know. They must be feeling the pressure, but I'm not sure how much they pay attention to that or if they kind of can rest in their comfort of massive piles of cash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, who knows? So so yeah, it's nice to get my setup upgraded. That feels good. Been like I said, I've been throwing myself into Mac OS development, which still is a gnarly world to me. And it's tough diving into what feels like a smaller community. It seems like if you're doing development in Swift, you're probably writing iOS apps. That seems to be like maybe 10 to 1 the resources for iOS versus Mac OS. There's less out there. Like last time I said this, someone was like, no, you've got it wrong. And there's plenty out there. But I still I'm still having trouble. Like I'm still like Where's the like a great tutorial that has the latest version of Swift and the latest version of Xcode? And it's like in Ruby, like it feels like that's just everywhere. And there's tons of great options for that. And it's like, it feels like there are way fewer here. I mean, in communities like Elixir and Ruby and Elm, there's quite a few people who are like independent content creators producing tutorials and how to's and some free, some paid. There's just a lot of people kind of interested in that. So are you finding most of the documentation you're reading is like official docs from Apple or... Yeah, a good amount of that. There are some people that are, are, you know, making independent stuff. I found some things like that, but it doesn't feel to be like as much of the culture as other languages I've, I've been a part of. We're making progress. We keep adding features to the app and it, it's it's moving along and I'm, I'm slowly getting up to speed as well. So yeah, I remember we had we had talked a few weeks back and I think you were debating on how deep on the technical stuff are you going to get? Are you going to stick in just the web land? Or are you going to go into native? What was the thinking behind um, diving into native? Um, it's what we need right now. Yeah. Uh, it was just sort of like, we, I, I could be working on marketing stuff or I could be working on even like trying to close more alpha people, but it's just like, we have money in the bank. We have a growing email list. Uh, we don't have a product. And so it's like, this is very much the blocker. And so having three programmers instead of two seemed like a good thing to do. I had a little bit of an anxiety around like, okay, we have a product 
and our core product I'm not going to be able to develop on. I won't be able to like fix any bugs or fix any annoyances. And it just felt like that was just a little bit too removed from the action for me. And that might be an immature way of thinking about it. I'm not sure. I would feel that way too, but I don't know. There's different approaches you can take. Rob, Rob intentionally didn't know the tech stack, so he wouldn't be tempted to get into it. So I don't know. I think you could look at it from a few different angles, but... Um, totally. Yeah. There was a part of me that was concerned I would be like making myself a job I didn't like, where it's like, okay, if I don't learn the tech stack, then all I can do is the sales and marketing work or operational work. And it's just like, I don't, I don't want to do that all the time. So that played into it for sure. Probably comes around to, you know, if you're thinking long term about what your role is going to look like, a lot of it has to do with what your ambitions are for the company. Do you guys want to stay small and kind of all have your hands and stuff? I think about like the Honey Badger team. I think that's essentially what they do. It's like three or four of them and they just kind of, they all write code. Some of them do a little bit more marketing than others, but they sort of all have their hands in a lot of the stuff and they don't really have a big team, but I think they are profitable and do pretty well. And, you know, there's others who want to grow more quickly and scale out a team. And then you really need someone who's more of the CEO type whose primary job is kind of recruiting and hiring and operations and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I think it remains to be seen. That's something I've been trying to figure out. It's it's a strategic point for me for level that I'm not totally clear on that I feel like I need to be giving some thought to. Not too much thought because I'm, it's still early and I don't have to make decisions about that. But also I kind of feel like I I have like competing ambitions where on the one hand, I want this to be really successful. On the other hand, I want to kind of be indie and not have too many dependencies and too big of a team and have to worry about paying, you know, high salaries to experienced developers. So it's sort of a, I don't know, an undecided point for me, but something I'm definitely giving thought to all the time. I sometimes feel guilty about my tendency to change my mind on things, but I'm, I'm learning to appreciate it, I think. It's like, why, why stick with a decision if it turns out to be not optimal based on what you know now? So it gives me a little anxiety or a little shame or something when it's like, oh, I said X and now I'm doing not X. Uh, but I think, it's, I think it's okay. That's part of the weirdness of having a podcast where I talk about what I am doing and going to do. Where it's like, if it were just in my head, then like if two weeks later I change my mind, who cares? But there's this weird, weird phenomenon of all these people listening to us. <laughs> right. But probably only a fraction of them are actually remembering from week to week what we uh, committed to. So, you know. Um, oh, yeah. Well. I mean, yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> no one called me out on my handstand video, for example. So yeah. <laughs> I think the, I think people are giving us a pass. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had a really good call, by the way, a couple weeks back. It's from a company that, let's say, culturally, they do a lot of pairing, like a lot. And so, in a way, are kind of our ideal place. And he was fairly up, high up in this thing, and they have a lot of developers. And the, the message was like, we don't think this problem is solved. We're very frustrated with the current tools. If you can solve this and we think it's great, we have a lot of money. Uh, and it was just like, man, this is, this is awesome. <laughs> that like, if we can make it great part is a huge question mark. It was just like another good sort of affirmation of like, yep, there's, there's a market. People want it. We're not just like doing a thing that actually is already solved really well by somebody else. Yeah. When you have conversations like that, are you digging in on like specifically in your use case, what, what defines great to you? So you can have clarity on like, I, tr I try to, yeah. When I'm, when I'm on my game, I'm, I dig into that because that, that is the interesting part. It's like, why isn't this working? What, you know, what do you need it to do? And that usually for is boiling down to sort of lag latency 
and like bugginess. Like there's just a lot of like getting the keyboards working correctly, getting mouse working well, having two mouse pointers, things like that. It usually falls down to just a couple things, which is a little dangerous because it means those things are hard. I think I don't think other people are not trying. Yeah, that's probably the area of of highest risk because it's the hardest challenge to solve. It's not like can you make a UI that does things. It's like can you get the bits moving across the wire efficiently that's real fast yeah yeah for sure uh and on along those lines we've been doing calls we had a call uh earlier this week and we have another one tomorrow i i reached out to two uh, web rtc experts just to just do like a one hour call each to sort of get us like it's another like just like point us in the right direction help us avoid some potholes things like that i feel good about it getting to talking to people that know what's up and saying like here are our here are the requirements of our domain and what we're trying to optimize for like which we're which codecs should we be using and how should we tune them that kind of thing useful stuff for sure is there a lot of open source stuff that you guys can kind of pull in for the native stuff or is it yes okay. the WebRTC itself is is open source so like we've pulled in that that whole thing we don't have a lot of dependencies at this point it's basically WebRTC. there is a kind of ruby gems equivalent for mac os land but it there seems to be again a little bit less of a tendency to use external dependencies these are my observations as a new person so take them with a, a grain of salt but it seems like people write a, a good number of their own dependencies i don't know we don't have a ton of code in, in our app as of yet webrtc is a big piece and the rest is mostly us we wrote an action cable client because we wanted to use that for communication between the the peers and there was not a good action cable client for swift that worked for us uh, so we've been we've been doing little little bits here and there that's cool and i imagine a platform like swift has a very large standard library kind of baked in that that interrupts with the operating system so that's probably why there's maybe a little bit fewer dependencies pulled in because it's just so much baked into the the platform yep i think that's true yeah cool yeah so that's that's the big stuff for me nice what's up with you yesterday elm 0.19 was released which was pretty exciting because i've been kind of watching that evolve a little bit and i knew that some of the priorities that they that Evan and the team had were improving performance on compilation times and on the ultimate like compiled size of the JavaScript payload using like dead code elimination, which it's funny if you read the blog post, it's mostly kind of about the performance optimization stuff. And you can just kind of feel Evan taking a victory lap as he describes, you know, how they were able to accomplish it and how like Elm can do it in a very pure way where it can determine with certainty what code is actually never used and always exclude it. And JavaScript, it's always an approximation or it's kind of like, was this module touched? And they have to do it on a per module basis. And that's where dynamic programming languages are very hard to optimize. Whereas Elm with its static types is extremely optimizable. So the results are, are looking really nice. If you're like compare the, the real world app which Richard Feldman has an implementation in Elm. It's Elm is by far the tiniest of the of the big, you know, React, Angular, and Vue. So that's pretty exciting. I was noticing my my own Elm bundle size growing quite large, and I'm only about I think I have about eleven thousand lines of Elm code of my own. So I can go now for a long time before payload size becomes a a major problem for me. As soon as it was released, I was like, okay, I'm going to take a stab and see if I can convert over to 0.19 pretty quickly and just sort of be another, you know, example case in the community of someone who's who's converted over and kind of share my findings and stuff. And it's been fairly smooth. One interesting thing, side effect of, of this shift was like almost all the packages that exist, well, basically all of them 
written for 0.18 are by default not compatible with 0.19 until they at least update their package files. And there are some changes to the standard library that, you know, you have to make if you're using those functions. I only had maybe four or five dependencies and I was kind of able to to work around them or just vendor them in and make the changes as needed. And then I can submit those patches back to the original maintainers. So that wasn't too bad. But there was one one piece that is going to take a little bit of time for me to to figure out, but I'm mostly done with it. And so they closed this backdoor loophole that you used to be able to use to inject arbitrary HTML into the virtual DOM. And I think it was in the name of security, which makes sense. But I was using that for rendering SVG icons and for taking server-side rendered markdown uh, for posts themselves and injecting them into the DOM. Now I'm kind of working through figuring out how to how to redo those things. But I think ultimately it's worth it for me to solve that problem now as opposed to wait you know, months down the line and then want to upgrade to 0.19 and have to tackle those problems as I'm trying to launch the product, you know. Was there like a recommended way of working around these things? Like with the the hack I was using for injecting HTML, I think it was, was like never the recommended path to use that. It was always like a, well, use it at your own risk type of thing. And I'm still kind of on the fence about whether I really want to invest a lot in doing all markdown rendering on the client side. I feel like like there could eventually be a lot of logic around I don't know how to how to like highlight mentions and how to do just complex things with with the rendered output and pushing all that logic onto the client side feels a little bit suboptimal to me, but you kind of have to see how that see how that pans out. Do you ever miss working on a server rendered app? It's still like taking me a little longer to implement just like, oh, I need to add a new page. And it takes me a bit longer to do it in the kind of the single page app flow as opposed to server side rendering. But I don't know, I still am highly enjoying working in Elm. And I have so much confidence in my code now that I think because of the characteristics of of level, it needs to be a single page app. So I'm really happy working in the Elm ecosystem. But it's a little bit different workflow for sure. Something I've had to get used to. Yeah, that's actually one thing I'm, I'm very pleased with is that Swift has a nice type system. It's featureful, and it's it's not quite as beautiful and pure as Elm. It doesn't take quite as hard a stance on on some things that I kind of wish it did, but it's it's just nice to have. Man, compilers, they're they're useful, and like the autocomplete that Xcode can give you because it has all these type things is like is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm feeling it. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. So I've been spending a little bit of time migrating that. I, I spent most of yesterday and a good part of today and I'm hoping to finish off most of the things I need to get it running. Like there's some tooling that's not quite caught up yet, like the webpack thingy that will compile your code and and help you assemble your JavaScript bundle like doesn't quite support 0.19 yet, but I'm sure it'll be, you know, within the next week or so. So it is pretty bleeding edge, but I don't know, some with with uh system like Elm, like normally I would be very hesitant to upgrade right away, but I just feel Elm's not going to break. Like they're not going to do a bunch of immediate releases right after to fix bugs. Like I, I'm pretty confident that it's thoroughly tested. <laughs> mm-hmm. so. Yeah, yeah, and those types give a lot of confidence too. Yeah, totally. That's badass. Yeah. So it's nice when someone else's work makes your thing better too. It's just like, oh, guess what? Smaller assets. Awesome. What'd you do? Nah, not that much. I mean, you you you're ending up doing some stuff because you're doing it so early. But people a couple weeks from now will probably just install it and go. Yep. 
Yeah, there's so that that was the big one, like the performance stuff. And there are also a number of improvements around the single page app workflow. There's some weirdness around having anchor tags that have hrefs. And if you click it, does it, you know, force a, a standard page reload or does it hook into the Elm URL change flow? And that was always a little bit of a weird, a weird thing in 0.18. And as a result of that, I've been using hash-based routing, which works fine, but sometimes it would be nice to have like the ability to craft a URL fully, like have the path and the, the query string fragment part uh, at my disposal. And this basically in 0.19, it's now pretty feasible to go with the standard path-based routing like it just all the links just automatically now are intercepted by the elm runtime and run through your update function so um, so i'm really excited about that too cool yeah it's like they make this release for you yeah exactly (laughs) cool yeah how is uh development going by the way it's going pretty good yeah i'm still working through inbox stuff this has been a little bit of a a little bit of a sidetrack um doing the upgrade but yeah, I'm feeling good about velocity and about my kind of new mandate to just get the MVP out as soon as possible. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm feeling positive overall about it. Cool. That's good. Yeah. Anything else? Um, one other note. So I was brainstorming the other day thinking about how I can continue to share things with people who are on the list and people who are just kind of interested in what's happening with level kind of in addition to this podcast. Um, I haven't really consistently been doing the other things like screencasting or publishing on my personal blog. And so I've been trying, I was trying to think of like different ways that I can, you know, continue to keep people involved. And one idea I had was to just kind of start journaling each day, like what did I get done this today, you know, and maybe it's not that interesting. Maybe it's just sort of talking about some piece of code that I wrote or some challenge that I had to overcome or haven't overcome yet. But I thought, you know, that's probably relatively low effort. Like it won't take that much time to just write a really short post each day at the end of each day, kind of summarizing what happened. And so I threw uh, a Twitter poll out to see if people would be interested in that. And it was like overwhelmingly positive, like, yes, I would read that or Someone proposed, like, maybe do it as an in an audio format as a like separate podcast, too. So I think I'm going to start doing that. Cool. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, the the journal thing is nice. Like we've been we've been using Basecamp's uh, check in feature where it's like, what are you going to do today? And it's been actually even nice for this podcast to be able to just flip back and see, like, what was I was I working on? Because it's hard to remember and it's just hard to sometimes it's hard to be nice to myself. Where it's like, are we even making progress? And then look back on a list. Like, okay, that's, yeah, those are, we had to do all those things and now they're done. So, all right, we're, we're good. Mm-hmm. Like just setting the, the threshold at the level where like, it doesn't really matter if I had that interesting of a day. I'm just going to write down what I did. Because I always, you know, I'm working on stuff every day. But just not having to be concerned about like, is this worth writing about? That's sort of been my barrier to regularly publishing blog posts. It's like, I don't know, like, how do I summarize this in a way that's actually interesting or making some kind of point? And it's like with a journal, you don't really, there doesn't really need to be a point. I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of talking about what I worked on. So, yeah. Well, you and Rob published that podcast about um, like the early days of Drip. Yep. Yeah, we did. And it was, that was edited down a bit, Mm -hmm. uh, but it was pretty, you know, just sort of like dev journaly. And I, I found that interesting. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people gave us some good reviews about that. So, but yeah. 
Cool. Well, you should probably tell people where if that's going to be or when it is a thing. Yes, I definitely will. I, I'm trying to decide if I should like spin it off on a separate blog. I don't want to spend a lot of time implementing it, but I also want it to kind of look nice and consistent with. Please don't put it on Medium. No, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that about pot, that pop up. Pardon the interruption. You know what? Go fuck yourself. I know. You have interrupted me so many times. I can't believe people are okay with that. Yeah. What a, it's like a major, I don't know, I guess, I guess when you opt into the level ecosystem, you're kind of, you should have known that that could happen. But I feel like they got so many people to use them and kind of benefit from the, the virality of publishing on there. And now they've just sort of like flipped the switch and tried to monetize heavily. And it's so yep. annoying. And then there's like, there's like a sticky top header sometimes and a sticky footer header. And it's like, you come on. Yeah. I don't know. So please don't use that. No, I won't yeah i might just go totally static and throw it on in the phoenix app like just stat some static html pages not over complicate it and then i can if it lives on my domain i can kind of start to build up some you know some authority with content in search engines and stuff mm -hmm. maybe what about ghost i have thought about ghost i just want to make sure i can I'm, i don't have to spend too much time like trying to get the styling to match kind of the the aesthetic i'm going for um gotcha yeah yeah so well yeah i mean static pages are pretty nice i just been noticing lately like i clicked on a couple articles from programmer blogs and it loaded so fast and it was such a change from what i'm used to and i was like oh like yeah like web pages can be fast it's mostly text so everything else you're putting in here is just crap it's just, oh man the internet let's, let's stop making it terrible we need a law that those cookie notices are illegal. <laughs> I know. I know. It's like... I was getting so pissed at these things. So I disregard laws that I think are stupid. And I think actually that's good. I think people should... Like petty, tyrannical, stupid laws should be ignored, I think. And like juries should refuse to convict people that are tried for these things. I think we should exercise our judgment because sometimes governments are dumb. And so I think if you post an, like a, this a site uses cookies notice on your website you're a coward and you should just accept like yeah you might have some penalties but like let's not screw everyone and like join the club and like screw those things right well especially if you're not in um if you're not in europe right now like i don't know yeah <laughs> even if you are like come on let's 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 be better than this yeah well it was funny uh, like like uh shortly after the gdpr stuff quite a few news organizations had like a separate version of their site that didn't track you know, had no JavaScript and like was not tracking at all. It was all static. So it was all like GDPR compliant because they're not tracking you at all. And those pages are just so blazing fast. Right. Well, yeah, you can still do that. I know. You know? <laughs> I'm pro that. Like, yeah, let's, let's do that part. Yep. Uh, you know, let's, let's just make a good internet, you know? Yeah, I'm all for it. I'm going to start charging people. I want to invoice people every time I click a cookie <laughs> notification. I'm going to pass a law for myself that says it costs $1,000 for me to dismiss any of those. Yeah. How are you going to collect on that? <laughs> I mean, this, the same way that EU collects on not doing it, like, which is you just mostly don't. Mm -hmm. All right. I got a little ranty. No, it's good. It's good stuff. Get it off, okay, cool. get it off your chest. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Do I feel better? I'm, I guess I feel a little better. I wanted to tweet that. I, I was trying to get the right the right wording for for it but it's it's i think it's better when you can say it and people can hear the frustration i don't want to have negative tweets but i guess occasional negative podcast rants are okay yeah sorry all right all right let's wrap it up cool shall we let's do it 
notes of the show. Notes of the show can be found at artofproductpodcast.com. Yeah, they can. And uh, have a good one. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.